We reject the ideology of globalism, and we embrace the doctrine of patriotism. Not only will this tax plan pay for itself, but it will pay down debt. There are moral and legal obligation questions that I think we'll have to wrestle with as a society. When we as people go wobbly on the truth, we go wobbly on America. All you have to do is look at the numbers, look at what we've done. And this is only the beginning. Yes, indeed. Thanks for tuning in to 100.9 FM WXIR in Rochester. This is Evidence of Design. I'm Jason Taylor, joined by my good friends and co-hosts via Zoom, Matt Treadwell. Yo. And Mary Lawrence. Hello. Today's show is first airing on Saturday, December 5th, but we are recording it on Wednesday, December 2nd. We are rightfully too scared of COVID to be around each other in the same small room in a studio and are trying to maintain social distancing as best as we can. So here we are, recorded evidence of design. We are not live, but still would love to hear from you anytime by getting in touch with us via Facebook, Twitter, or our email by reaching out to our radio EOD handles. Our show, Evidence of Design, is all about discussing income and wealth inequality. We're living through times of historically high economic inequality, at least in our modern lives. The wealthiest individuals in our society control the vast majority of all of the income and wealth that there is. These are not my opinions. These are the facts. The top 20% of income earners in the United States take in around 52% of all of the income. The bottom 20% of all income earners, so the poorest 20% of Americans, only take in 3% of all of the income. Wealth? Well, it's even more disparate. The top 20% of wealthiest individuals in this country control 70% of all of the nation's wealth. The bottom 50% of Americans control just about 1% or 2% of all of the wealth. Bottom 50% doesn't even make a scratch. Our economy is vastly hierarchized such that income and wealth is concentrated at the top, but it's not just that it's morally unfair. It also leads into other structural social problems like political power being concentrated in the hands of the wealthiest and like social breakdowns in terms of healthcare, in terms of social safety nets, in terms of job opportunities, because it's all being concentrated at the top and those at the bottom or even those in the middle, are being left behind. So we, on Evidence of Design, critique that fact, and then we uh, investigate kind of what we can do as a country and as a society. How can we not continue to go down this path? Because it is not an accident. We create our reality. We can create our future. On today's show, we will continue our theme by discussing President-elect Joseph R. Biden Jr.'s economic team. He announced his economic team this past Tuesday, 
And, you know, a president is surrounded by a lot of different advisors because the job of being a president and our executive branch and our government at large is, is, is a big institution. And so one person, of course, can't and shouldn't do it all alone. So they're surrounded by various advisors and teams of people doing the work that, in theory, uh, the people of the country voted for. And so Joe Biden announced the folks uh, who will be leading a lot of uh, the economic efforts during his presidency. We'll talk about who those folks are, some positive things we think come out of what that team can bring to our country, and also some worrying signs too, because uh, you know, on this show, we've also uh, largely critiqued democratic economic policies. And unfortunately, we think there's still plenty to critique, uh, even in a Biden presidency. But before we get to that, we got to start out with the latest COVID-19 numbers as we've done every week on the show. Unfortunately, they're not looking good. Normally, I'd invite you to call in, but again, we are pre-recorded on Evidence of Design on 100.9 FM WXIR. So until we're back live, you can always get in touch with us by giving us an email at radioeod at gmail.com or find us on Facebook and Twitter at radioeod. Mary, why don't we go ahead and start out with the latest COVID-19 facts and figures. Uh, we know we're not going in the right direction. Unfortunately, we've had to say that for the past several weeks. Uh, my understanding is that it's really, really bad, not only nationally, but perhaps more importantly for us locally. Is that right, Mary? That is unfortunately correct, Jason. Uh, so our listeners who tune in pretty often will know that I generally start with the world numbers and then go down to the national numbers and then local. This time we're just going right for the local numbers because they are startling enough and that's really where we need to be focused right now. Uh, so locally, again, all of these numbers are as of Wednesday and you can look these numbers up on monroecounty.gov. There's a COVID-19 archive. Uh, the Monroe County Department of Public Health has a daily update. So you can see what the numbers are, what the breakdown is by age for yourself if you'd like to. Monroe County Public uh, Department of Public Health officials reported 625 new COVID-19 cases today on Wednesday, December 2nd. Wow. That is the highest caseload we have had to date. Uh, and that is nearly double what we were looking at a week ago, uh, which is huge. The seven-day rolling average of cases is now 470 new, 72 new cases per day, which makes the countywide seven-day rolling average positivity rate 6.47%. Um, now, Monroe County is broken into two different sections based on population. So within the city of Rochester and parts of Irondequoit, Brighton, and I believe Greece, uh, the county is in orange zone, uh, and we'll, we'll talk about what that means in a moment. And in the orange zone, the positivity rate is 6.94%. In the yellow zone, which is the surrounding areas with lower population, uh, it is 6.42%. There are currently 461 people in the Finger Lakes region hospitalized with the virus, including 83 in the ICU. Unfortunately, this number of hospitalizations is the highest it has ever been. And the number in the ICU increased by 15 people from yesterday. So from 24 hours before this 
uh, announcement, there had been 15 fewer people. So people are not only getting sick, but they are getting sicker and having to get more intensive treatment. Um, one small good note is that there were no new virus deaths today. So no one died because of the virus uh, today on Wednesday, um, which makes our total to date uh, or keeps it rather at 328 deaths in Monroe County due to COVID-19. So Finally, there are, sorry to cut you off, just uh, one last comment is that there are 3,571 active cases. So that number of people currently have COVID-19, which is again, the highest number yet for the pandemic locally. And it is the seventh straight day that this record has been broken. Those numbers are really quite shocking, Mary. I know it's it's so hard to talk about COVID-19 in terms of numbers. You know, we sort of colloquially say it as, how are the numbers today? Have the numbers gone up? Are the numbers bad? And it's just sort of, a, as someone who finds linguistics fascinating, it's a really interesting way to try to come to understand and characterize our reality. Because, right, there's one part of our brain that comes to understand the world through such more, perhaps, so one could say factual or objective things as numbers. And there's another part of our brain or, you know, humanity that comes to understand the world through our lived experience. And each number that we share is someone's lived experience. When we talk about the fact that to date in Monroe County, 328 people have passed away because of the virus. That's uh, more than one person per day since yeah. the virus started. One per, more than one person, someone in Monroe County, more than one person per day has passed away to the virus. That someone has a family. You know, that someone um, was someone else's best friend. Uh, that someone uh, was contributing in some way to this community and, and perhaps had for many years. And, um, you know, we've, we've lost them to the virus. And it's, it's just... Uh, it's just really hard to wrap your head around these things, especially when we say that we are averaging, as of the recording of the show, nearly 500 cases per day. That's a lot of people. Monroe County has around 740,000 people. Just in the past two weeks, we have had 5,853 cases. In the past two weeks alone, 5,853 cases. That's around 1% of people in Monroe County in the past two weeks have COVID-19. Around 1%. That doesn't, maybe that doesn't sound like a lot. That sounds like a, a horrible <laughs> amount to me. It sounds like a, a lot. Um, but, you know, just in the past two weeks, it's 1%. But we know how viruses work is that it's sort of exponential. The more people get it, the more contacts they're in, uh, the faster it spreads. Um, so long story short, you know, I, I'm worried about where we're at with the virus. Uh, I, I don't see signs of this slowing down. Indeed, unless we drastically change our habits, uh, I would imagine this will only continue, especially as the holiday season's going on. Um, so, you know, I, I guess I would simply say, as we've said it over the past several weeks, uh, let's all try to do our best to wear masks, to practice social distance, or to practice physical distancing, not necessarily social distancing, and, and really try to take this stuff seriously because, uh, you know, the especially a scary thing about COVID-19 is when our healthcare system gets backed up and the ICU beds are taken up and the hospital beds are taken up. People who have sort of uh, more normal non-COVID-19 emergencies can't get care. And uh, we know this week that the U of R's strong hospital 
uh, the U of R Medical Center has delayed elective surgeries for three months. Um, so, you know, there's already signs of people not being able to get care. You know, obviously those are elective, but uh, any more burden on the healthcare system is something that we want to avoid. And even though we see uh, some hope perhaps of vaccines on the horizon, we need to get there first and we're not going to get there if um, <laughs> the pandemic is as, is as completely raging as it seems to uh, be doing. Thanks for putting that in some more like personalized terms, Jason. And there, there's one more thing I'd like to talk about briefly, which is the red, orange, yellow zones. As I mentioned, we're currently in an orange zone in the in in the city of Rochester and some of the surrounding area. And the most the most of Monroe County uh, outside of Rochester is in the yellow zone. And one question I was thinking about as I was looking at the numbers today, and I've been shocked, you know, every single day for the past several days. And I'm wondering how close are we to entering the so-called red zone? Um, and just to put it in perspective, the geographic area, so again, the city of Rochester would have to have a seven day rolling average positivity rate of above 4% for 10 days. And the area has 10 or more new daily cases per 100,000 residents on a seven day average. So I think we're already meeting, we have been meeting both of those um, and at least, we have at least had a positivity rate of above 4% for seven days. It's not looking like it's slowing down. So I'm assuming by Saturday, we may, when this show airs, we may actually be in the red zone. And to remind everyone what that means, that means there will be no allowed residential or non-residential gatherings. Uh, churches and houses of worship can have no more than 25% of their normal capacity. Non-essential businesses are closed. Uh, restaurants are for takeout and delivery only, so no going inside and schools are closed. Uh, so only remote learning, which the Rochester City School District has been in. Uh, they have not ever opened their school this year. Right. And, and Mary, just one note about the schools, you got that all right, is that there's been a recent change by uh, Cuomo's you know, administration, Governor Cuomo, and saying that schools can reopen even if they're in the orange or red zone, if they follow various testing guidelines. So it used to be that if you're in the red zone or the orange zone, nope, schools have to close. That recently changed. Uh, so schools can be open if they follow certain guidelines, but everything else you read, Mary, is totally, um, you know, totally still stands. And we would kind of go back to the way that we were living at the start of the pandemic in March, when, you know, kind of ironically, local COVID-19 numbers were, uh, <laughs> here we go, talking about numbers, um, you know, was like 10 people, 10 people a day, as opposed to uh, 600. So uh, it just, it, it's, I find that ironic. Yeah, I think one important point to bring up as well is that we're recording this on Wednesday, we're not even a week out from Thanksgiving yet. And so for people who did gather with their families for the holiday, it'll be really interesting to see, like, how that affects the numbers going forward. But, you know, I'm, I'm really looking forward to seeing what happens, I guess. Yeah, I'm looking forward to a time when, um, you know, our healthcare system is, is less burdened. All of our consciences and psyches are less burdened by this pandemic and virus. And, um, you know, as a reminder, if, if we had gotten a jump on this virus 
uh, based on the information that the federal government had, then we, and if the federal government acted to uh, roll out a testing plan and uh, create the nationwide culture that was needed to uh, respect the threat that the virus posed, and also allow people to understand that we can have um, safety from the virus without destroying the economy, it's not a black or white issue, uh, then we wouldn't be in this place that we are today, right? Uh, uh, you know, as the theme of the show, uh, society is not created by accident. The choices we make results in the society that we live in. So, you know, uh, we mentioned two weeks ago that once the horse is out of the barn, it becomes very hard to control and it seems frustrating and whatnot. And unfortunately, that's kind of where we are. But simple steps, wearing a mask, physical distancing, goes a heck of a long way and i hope we can get out of this soon yeah what a time though to be uh coming into the office as a new presidential elect for joe biden what a what a way to start huh man if i was joe biden i'd be i'd be so frustrated about every time i get into the federal government at the executive <laughs> branch the country is on fire back in 2008 with the great recession he finally gets the presidency he's got the worst economic crisis since the great recession if not the great depression and a pandemic joe biden's like ah, i'll take what i can get but <laughs> if, I, if i if i was joe biden i would be like I finally achieved the culmination of my life's purpose, you know, 40 plus years of, of lusting after this position. And I finally achieved all the glory and uh, a praise that goes along with it. And uh, just stringing people along with this idea of unity and, and like uh, finally putting an end to the partisan divide that has only grown over the last 20 years. And yeah, I just really don't see a way out of it. So all I can say is when I'm 78, I hope I'm retired. <laughs> I hope I'm still not working. <laughs> That's all I got to say. I don't, I don't know if I, I don't even know if I want to. <laughs> I, I hear that social security will only kick in when we're 95 later on. No, I'm just kidding <laughs> for our future. <laughs> we'll see what happens. Yeah, we're not going to have social security by then. Uh, yeah, maybe, anyway, maybe we should, maybe we should uh, think about that though. We're not going to have maybe. a planet guys. <laughs> indeed so yeah, let's let's <laughs> let's do that transition thank you for tuning in to evidence of design on 100.9 fm wxir in rochester mary you just walked us through the local covid19 facts and figures as scary as they are boy we gotta be taking this stuff seriously let's transition now to talking about president-elect joe biden's economic team he introduced them this past week on tuesday so uh, the context for Joe Biden walking into the presidency, as we were just, just discussing, tough times, uh, especially in regards to economics. So this month in December, millions of Americans are slated to lose their unemployment benefits, among others. Uh, more than 12 million Americans, to be specific, will lose unemployment benefits uh, that were sort of guaranteed or provided by the CARES Act, uh, unless there's an extension from Congress and the federal government. This also overlaps with uh, other protections that will be extinguished, such as protections for renters and uh, student loan payments having to be paid again. 
And so there is a sort of a, you know, storm coming this month in December, unless Congress and the federal government passes new legislation to either support people through some of the economic devastation that is happening, uh, or at least, you know, push the burden down the road, such as, uh, you know, uh, foregoing student loan payments for now or uh, foregoing the possibility of eviction. I got to say, Congress loves playing this game. Of waiting to the last minute? It's just like it's the government's going to get shut down. The the uh, federal employees aren't going to get paid until Trump gets his border wall. You know, it's always just every every few years, or not even that. It's just every once in a while. It's like we've got to keep people on edge because politics is just a reality TV show at this point. Well, Matt, let me ask you something. In school, did you wait to write your research paper the day before it was due? Oh, absolutely. All right, man. Well, Congress is writing its research. But, you know, my, my research paper wasn't uh, my research. Whether or not I turned in my research paper didn't um, affect whether or not millions of people were going to have a place to live. Touche, man. Touche. I would also hope that like one of the things with maturing and becoming an adult is like learning that waiting until the last minute is not, in fact, the best idea. You know, like if you're in, in the Senate, which most people in the Senate are over 50, let's be real. Over it's been a long 70. time to learn. <laughs> over 100. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, to, to be real, they've had a long time to learn that it's not a good idea to wait until the last minute. You know? Uh, Orrin Hatch is no longer in the Senate. You got to bring their average down, okay? <laughs> <laughs> Mary, that's a good point. Um, our government should be made up of responsible people who are proactive about ensuring that uh, human beings' basic needs are met. Um, unfortunately, they uh, aren't doing the best <laughs> job at that. Um, unfortunately, they aren't. End of sentence. <laughs> yeah, I thought that was your whole sentence. <laughs> I'm trying to be generous. I'm trying. It's a new me. Because Trump is gone. Well, Trump will hopefully soon be gone. I'm trying to be generous. I don't know how long it's going to last. Maybe not even by the end of the show. But well, let's uh, talk about how generous Congress was going to try to be. Love yeah. it. Yeah. So, um, so you know, ever since midsummer after the CARES Act was passed, uh, Democrats at least were saying we need more aid for people. Uh, state and local governments are gutted by lack of tax revenues because people themselves are gutted by either being unemployed or being underemployed or having their wages cut and hours cut so, yeah uh, tough this is stuff. something this is something that I, i'm still sort of learning about but it seems that like uh state and local governments are in a really a real bind right now because they can't just invent currency in the same way that the federal government can yeah, there, this is sort of beyond our scope for today's show, but state and local governments are obligated to try to have a balanced budget, whereas the federal government isn't. The federal government, the, the, I mean, we're, not gonna, we're gonna get into monetary theory here, but uh, newsflash, money doesn't actually exist. Uh, we pretend it does, yet it runs our world, newsflash. Uh, and the, the federal government invents money. And so the federal government can, whenever they want, invent more money and more debt if they need to. And no one's gonna, no one's gonna hold the federal government responsible because they invent the money. How do you, you know, how do you hold, uh, you know, well, I was going to do a religious example, but, uh, you know, the federal government can't really get in trouble, monetary, uh, modern monetary theorists would say, because they invent the money, whereas state and local governments don't. And so um, 
yeah, there's a difference between how state and local governments are in a bind by this pandemic because they are gutted and that trickles down to everyone, you know, school systems. Um, we're facing this right now in the RCSD with not only did we have um, that budget uh, mismanagement for years, but now there's state and local government cuts or, or, you know, state cuts to the education and it's made the budget crisis all that much worse. So we're seeing this in our lived experience right here in Rochester. And uh, so Democrats had proposed $3 trillion to, for state and local governments for additional aid for workers. And of course, Mitch McConnell was like, nope, we don't need this. We got to let it play out for a lot longer. I'm going to wait to do my research paper the night before it's due. You know, all that sort of stuff. <laughs> let it play out. I'm going to let it play out. <laughs> that, what kind of response is that? Uh, it's Mitch McConnell, man. You know, uh, he's Emperor Palpatine. So, Not um, enough people have died yet <laughs> for me to do anything. Uh, let's wait to see if Trump wins or not. Uh, let's well, not not even Trump. Let's wait to see how good or bad Republicans do in, in the election. But um, so this week, there's a bipartisan group of senators, some Democrats, and Republicans. They proposed a $900 billion relief bill that would include $300 a week in federal unemployment benefits. It would include uh, several hundred billion dollars for the Paycheck Protection Program so that hopefully uh, small businesses wouldn't lay off workers. You know, that happened earlier on in the summer. And it also would include money for um, schools, state and local governments, and vaccine distributions. So that's $900 billion. That is one third of the amount that democrats had proposed it's right yeah. around target for what republicans were proposing republicans if you know mcconnell said nothing some other republicans said i want one billion dollars um so <laughs> this is amazing this is, this is compromise with a with an entrenched party like the republicans you like you you ask for three billion when they want or you trillion, ask for three trillion, trillion when they say nine billion you give them nine billion, and then you have yeah. Mitch, or yeah, nine hundred billion, and then Mitch McConnell. You have quoted here, Jason, saying, "We don't have time to waste time." And he shuts down the bill. <laughs> <laughs> like, what a what a line from Mitch McConnell, who put the Senate on recess right after the original additional unemployment help ended over the summer. <laughs> What a lot. Yeah. <laughs> this is just incredible. This is just like Mitch McConnell like saying nine hundred billion or no, and then Democrats are like, okay, nine hundred billion, and then Mitch McConnell's like, bill denied. It didn't have a writer about abortion rights in it or anything. <laughs> it's well, not enough dead children. Matt, it's even worse than what you're describing. So this bipartisan Senate legislation that we're describing, the $900 billion, which is very oh, similar yeah. to what the original Republican proposal was, um, that was not even... McConnell's not even backing that. McConnell says that's too much. McConnell wants only $500 billion, the vast majority of which would go to businesses. So McConnell's not even backing the $900 billion. He's saying we don't have time to waste time. Like we need to pass something right now, meaning we don't have time to be bipartisan. Let's, as Republicans in the Senate majority, just pass this legislation that I propose, $500 billion, most of which goes to businesses. And it's funny that he says we don't have time to waste time because he's the one who didn't jump on any more legislation for the past six months uh, because he's the grim reaper in Congress. So yeah, Matt, uh, it is ridiculous. It is hilarious. It is depressing. We should be crying and laughing at the same time. Uh, bad news for you, buddy. People of Kentucky just elected him for six more years. So uh, get used to Mitch McConnell because uh, his horcruxes are still kicking around for a lot yeah. longer. 
but you know so i'm sorry we're, we're kind of going on here on 100.9 fm wxir you're listening to evidence of design normally we're live for you but because of covid19 we are pre-recording our shows now we're we're pre-recording on Wednesday, December 2nd. The show is first airing Saturday, December 5th. We're talking about Joe Biden's, uh, President-elect Joe Biden's economic team. We should probably jump into that now halfway through our show, laying out the context that, uh-oh, COVID-19 is or, you know, spreading uh, like a forest fire across the country and locally now, very tough locally. And lots of folks are going to run out of unemployment benefits this month, unless the federal government and Congress does something about that, not looking good because Senate Republicans um, aren't that responsible when it comes to serving the needs of most Americans. I believe we've used the term death cult in the past. I told you I'm trying to be generous. And, I'm not, uh, so. <laughs> and we're not going to let you. <laughs> so what is Joe Biden got to say about all this? Because, hey, he did happen to win the election. So did Mitch McConnell, but at least new executive branch. So uh, this week, Joe Biden announces his new economic team. This includes folks like the Secretary of the Treasury. Joe Biden is announcing Janet Yellen for that position. It, it includes folks like the Director of the Office of Management and Budget, the uh, Chair of the Council of Economic Advisors, um, and, and uh, some other vice president, or sorry, uh, vice associative <laughs> roles, assistant of roles. So people who surround the president, secretary of treasury, office of management and budget, council of economic advisors, people who help the president set and enact, enact his economic goals for the country. Let's hear a little bit from Joe Biden himself. This is a clip of him this Tuesday laying out what he or who he is trying to serve with his economic agenda. Given a fair shot and an equal chance, there's nothing, we all believe there's nothing beyond the capacity of the American people. Let's not forget who built this country. Working class and middle class people built this country and unions built the middle class. And from the most unequal economic and job crisis in modern history, we can build a new American economy that works for all Americans, not just some, all. Joe Scranton Joe there. We're hearing a little bit of Scranton Joe talking about his vision to bring back the American middle class and particularly unions. We know that Joe Biden has, you know, his, his identity is tied in with kind of, like I said, Scranton Joe because he's from uh, blue collar Pennsylvania back with the union jobs and steel workers. And he's kind of speaking to that narrative of America, of union working middle class folks. I think the reality will probably be harder than just the rhetoric, uh, but at least at least this is a change in tone, right? President Trump doesn't speak about this. He 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 doesn't talk about sort of the middle class or, or unions. Um, I don't know if Trump knows what a union is. Uh, he's he knows yeah. that they should be destroyed. Uh, given he knows his free up is. <laughs> yeah, he you know so he's not he's not all that generous when it comes to those. So so we're seeing a different tone. I gotta yeah, say I find this tone crazy. refreshing. Uh, oh, I, it's definitely more polite. It's certainly more polite. Democrats are good at being polite. Um, we'll see if it comes to fruition. Let, let's, let's continue to hear a little bit about what Biden's proposing beyond sort of the rhetoric of middle class and union jobs. Uh, you know, we've been mentioning how Biden is inheriting a pandemic economy. Biden and Obama also inherited the Great Recession in 2008. 
So he is at least used to coming into office, executive office, with national tragedies and emergencies. He is calling his plan here uh, for the economy the Build Back Better Plan. And um, so he's going to build back the economy. He's going to make it better, of course, because what politician wants to say, we're going to build it back worse. So he's going to build it back better. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, you know, he, he's trying to thread the needle between saying, look, we, we have to take COVID-19 seriously, but we can do it in a way that doesn't gut the economy. It's not like Rep Republicans are saying it's not black or white saying, look, it's not about um, either wearing a mask and closing businesses. There's a way to do it. Uh, let's hear more from Biden about how this could be done. It's time we address the structural inequities in our economy that this pandemic has laid bare. Economists call this current economy and recovery K-shaped. Well, like the two lines coming off of a K, some people, some people are seeing their prospects soar upward, while others are watching their economic prospects drop sharply. For those at the top, jobs have come back and their wealth is rising. For example, luxury home sales are up over 40% compared to last year. But from those in the middle and the bottom, it's a downward slide. They're left figuring out how to pay the bills and put food on the table. Almost one in every six renters was behind in rent payments as of October. Let me be clear, with this team and others, we'll add in the weeks ahead that we're going to create a recovery for everybody. For all, we're going to get this economy moving again. We're going to create jobs, raise incomes, reduce drug prices, advance racial equity across the economy, and restore the backbone of this country, the middle class. Our message to everybody struggling right now is this. Help is on the way. Help is on the way. So, Jason, this is a, a clip that I'm really happy you played because... It was the first time I had heard Joe Biden and, or really anyone invoke the term K-shaped economy or K-shaped recovery. Mm -hmm. But apparently he's been saying that since at least September and I've just somehow managed to avoid it all this time. Either way, for people who are still wondering what that means, essentially, if you were to map out the economic recovery of, of the economy on a graph and you were to look at how well, for instance, you know, wealthier earners are doing they would you would see them rising in, in, in essence doing better and lower income earners still declining doing worse and it creates what looks kind of like a k that's where the term comes from yeah i thought it was a really great visual and i i appreciated that he mentioned it yeah i certainly liked what i heard there from president-elect joe biden talking about the economy saying that look, we have inequality in this country and inequality isn't just morally wrong. It manifests as some people doing better off than others. Sometimes at the expense of others, right? Because some people are doing well, or the, the reason why people are doing well, it's because some people are doing worse. I don't, I don't know if he was actually going there, but I think, you know, that's at least the way I interpret it. And um, where I think he was explicitly going though, is that I want to build an economy that works for everyone. I, I find that less compelling when he just came off saying that some people are already doing really well. Um, I think we need to be more explicit when we say in order to do better for those at the bottom, 
we need to actually focus on them, right? Not this wishy-washy stuff of focus on everyone because some people are going to be doing fine no matter what the government does, right? They could, uh, the federal government could raise the top marginal tax rate on the highest income earners to 95% and they will still be billionaires. There will still be yep. billionaires, right? There will still be millionaires, tens of millions of millionaires. So, so people will still, the wealthiest people will do fine no matter what happens, and, and so the idea of, you know, having an economy the best for everyone doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me when, uh, why, why aren't we focusing on those people going downward in the K economy, right? Um, it's like saying wealthy lives matter to people saying poor lives matter. Oh, that's a really strong comparison, Matt. Yeah, totally, totally. You know, it's, it's right. It's, it's, it's. Well, it's the all lives matter. <laughs> yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah, that, that is the all lives matter equivalent of the economic argument. That is a, yeah, such a com- great point. Just as bad. <laughs> totally. I mean, I, well, I would argue that, yeah, because it, it manifests in so many precarious and horrible ways. Uh, yeah. uh, so at, at least we're hearing rhetoric, though, of that there's inequality. Again, Trump administration doesn't bring that up. Let's hear now from one other person uh, on the good side of things. This is what we're taking out relatively positively from Biden's economic team. Again, you're listening to Evidence of Design on 100.9 FM WXIR. This clip now is from Janet Yellen. She used to be the chairperson of the Federal Reserve. Biden has nominated her to be the uh, 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 Secretary of the Treasury. Steve Mnuchin currently holds that job. Oh, Steve. Hopefully Janet Yellen will do a better job. Bar's pretty low. So um, let's, let's, let's see what Janet has to say about how, to, how we can use this opportunity where we are in America in these tragedies to fix some of the underlying structural issues. It's an American tragedy. And it's essential that we move with urgency. Inaction will produce a self-reinforcing downturn causing yet more devastation. And we, miss, we risk missing the obligation to address deeper structural problems, inequality, stagnant wages, especially for workers who lack a college education, communities that have seen industry disappear with no good jobs replacing lost ones, racial disparities in pay job opportunities, housing, food security, and small business lending that deny wealth building to communities of color. Gender disparities that keep women out of the workforce and keep our economy from running at full force. It's a convergence of tragedies that is not only economically unsustainable, but one that betrays our commitment to giving every American an equal chance to get ahead. That's Janet Yellen, tapped by Joe Biden to be the Secretary of the Treasury, speaking about various structural issues in the American economy and how we have to use this opportunity to fix some of those structural issues. Matt, Mary, I really liked what I heard there. Yeah, Janet Yellen's an interesting figure. She's um. She's, she's probably the most experienced person among the people that were at the press conference. She's taught in universities all her life, you know, Brown and uh, Yale educated, I believe. She taught at Harvard. Um, she actually served 
in Bill Clinton's administration in the 90s. And one thing I came across while I was doing a little background research on her was that she had presided over a study uh, during Bill Clinton's second term that looked at gen- uh, disparities in pay um, based on gender, the gender pay gap, and had essentially found that the the disparities were most likely to be a result of discrimination, persecution. Um, so I, I can see why, you know, people on the left, even even progressives would look at somebody like Janet Yellen and think, wow, this is actually kind of cool. This is like somebody who seems to be like on the right side of things. But I don't know if we want to get into this exactly yet, but I have I think we do have reasons to have reservations about not just Janet Yellen, but Biden's whole team. Yeah, we'll transition to uh, sort of more of the critiques that we have in, in just about uh, exactly a minute here. Uh, you know, I, I do want to just put in context again that I am so refreshed at least to hear rhetoric from uh, who will be a senior government official in Joe Biden's cabinet to talk about structural inequalities and the need to fix them, including things like inequality, stagnant wages, uh, the, the disappearing of jobs for really non-college educated folks, and also racial and gender disparities in the workforce like those are good things to bring up and um, you know the republican party doesn't acknowledge most of those things as issues are existing and so it's good to at least acknowledge them but matt totally hear you it doesn't mean let's hang up our hats go home turn on netflix and tune out of the government for the next four years because whoop-de-doo governments are in, uh, democrats are in control um it's not you know life ain't that simple and we have to always be fighting for a more just and equitable society, holding all leaders accountable, regardless of whether they have a capital D or capital R next to their name. Uh, we have good reason to do that. And that's not a bad thing, by the way, you know, that's politics and that's society, that's democratic society and um, that's life. And, and we gotta keep fighting the good fight. So, uh, you know, talking about uh, President-elect Joseph R. Biden Jr.'s economic team, who he announced this Tuesday on evidence of design on 100.9 FM WXIR in Rochester. Joe Biden had a press conference where he kind of uh, laid out six folks he want, he's nominating um, on his economic team. This includes the Secretary of the Treasury, the Director of the Office of Management and Budget, and also the Chair of the Council of Economic Advisors, among others. Let's talk about some of the critiques that we have of this team and some of its vision, though. Um, I found a pretty poignant one, Matt and Mary, I think we're all on the same page here when it comes to connecting work with the idea of dignity and self-worth. Unfortunately, I found this to be a common theme throughout the press conference from multiple members. We'll play two clips here, hearing from Joe Biden and Janet Yellen on this. Here's Joe Biden talking about the connection between work and dignity and respect. My dad, you've heard me say this before, when he lost his job in Scranton when I was a kid, and we eventually moved the family not far from here, Claymont, Delaware, just in the outskirts of Wilmington, used to say, Joey, a job is about a lot more than a paycheck. It's about your dignity. It's about respect, your place in the community. It's about being able to look your kid in the eye and say, honey, it's going to be okay and mean it. That's Joe Biden's take on the connection between work, dignity, and respect. Let's hear from Janet Yellen now. At the end of the day, he would talk to me, my brother, and my mom about what work meant to his patients, our friends and neighbors, especially if they lost a job 
the financial problems, the family problems, the health problems, the loss of dignity and self-worth. The value of work always stuck with me, so much so that I became an economist because I was concerned about the toll of unemployment on people, families, and communities. And I've spent my career trying to make sure people can work and achieve the dignity and self-worth that comes with it. Matt, Mary, both Joe Biden and Janet Yellen, they're talking about how their parents taught them of the value of work connected to, among other things, dignity, self-worth, and respect. What are your yeah, thoughts on that? An, this is such a sub-worldview and like argument to be making because the, the indignities that you know Yellen and Biden uh, mentioned, not being able to put food on the table, being afraid of uh, being evicted or anything, those, those are all things that that we we create that we cause you know we don't none of that needs to be alleviated by work we we all choose to participate in a system i mean we don't all choose but we all have uh just sort of accepted that we live in a system where you have to work in order to survive because working is the only way to make money but we we know we we know that we have the means to to house and clothe and feed everyone in this country and so nobody needs to suffer through these kinds of things nobody needs to go through this we we decide that they do because we we have this peculiar sort of like i, I because we we like to demonize poor people we like to blame them for their fault for for being poor they're they're uh, lazy or they're drug addicts or you know they they just made poor life decisions that have caused them to deserve the, the foul state that their lives are in. Um, instead of just recognizing that, you know, life isn't fair and uh, people don't enter into this world having access to the same opportunities as everyone else. And we have a responsibility to take care of everyone because we can and because everybody has an inherent value because of their people. Yeah, I would agree with your point about inherent value. And and these two clips to me, and, and they were also, as you mentioned, Jason, this is a theme that was echoed in, I think, every single one of the speeches that we heard uh, in this press conference. But this to me is evidence of the successful indoctrination of American individualism. Like these two are apparently, it seems to me, people who have not experienced firsthand another system and seen how something else can also work. Um, as you know, you know, when I started this show, I was fresh uh, back from two years in Germany uh, and, and Germany has a much more robust social safety network uh, than we do in the United States. There is still a very strong work ethic, but the idea of individualism and that you that your dignity and that your worth as a human being is tied to your job and that your health care is tied to your job and that uh, you know having enough money to feed your family is tied to your job. That is very American. Um, other countries have had a vision to move past that. And I, I had hoped that maybe we were there. Um, I think this hopefully is a generational thing. 
um, unfortunately, you know, they're echoing their parents. And I hope that at least our generation is able to look past it um, and, and, and look for something, another place to find our dignity and maybe a national way to find our health care and, uh, and some of our funds. Where is the dignity in working in like an Amazon warehouse where you're at risk of being fired if you take too many bathroom breaks and you can't afford health insurance, even though you're working 60 plus hours a week? Like the idea that this, that the answer to this, to all of these issues is to just get people working is such a, uh, I don't even know how to describe it. it. It just, it's. It's not the conversation that I want us to be having. It's not the way forward, in my opinion. No, and the thing, too, is that work and what work meant meant something different when their parents were working uh, and when they were working as younger people. And that is also something that they alluded to in some of the conversations was that, you know, everyone who invoked their parents uh, and what their parents' job meant to them often brought up that they had a union and that they had union benefits. And those are things that have ceased to exist in most industries. So people who have a job today don't necessarily have the dignity and the protection and uh, someone else fighting for them that people would have had 40 or 50 years ago. Uh, So what work means and what it means to have a job looks extremely different now. And I I didn't feel that that was recognized to the extent that it should have been. Phenomenal points. Couldn't have said any of it better myself. Uh, You know, I, I guess I just want to reiterate and sum that up by saying you as a human being have inherent dignity and self worth. Your dignity and self worth is not defined by your job. I don't care if you're a CEO of Amazon or if you are, Matt, uh, the, the, the worker on the assembly line making minimum wage with very little to no benefits. One person is not worth more or less than another. As a human being, you have dignity and self-worth. Do not let capitalism define your worth for you. And Mary, I know you and I have talked about this, Matt. I'm sure we have as well. I have had times in my life where I didn't have a job and I felt depressed because I didn't have it, and I felt like a worthless slug. That is nothing inherent to being human. That is a enculturated value. And I had to remind myself, I'm a human being. I can do things. I matter. Society and capitalism is telling me I'm worthless because I'm not working. We have to get over that and re-recognize that as humans, we have dignity and self-worth. Do not let the capitalists define you for you. Unfortunately, Joe Biden and Janet Yellen seem to be part of that worldview that is fundamentally a Republican conservative capitalist worldview. And that's been a problem with democratic politics for several decades as a failure to imagine and define an alternative worldview outside of exploitative capitalism. So, you know, Joe Biden and Janet Yellen can talk about the middle class. and I'm all for that. I'm all for them talking about structural issues in the economy, but let's keep holding them accountable too, to not being caught up in this conservative, Republican, capitalistic, exploitative rhetoric of having people being defined by uh, you know, the interests of capitalists as opposed to their inherent humanity. Yeah, I, wanna, I just want to add real quick, I, w- I really want to get into this more, but we don't have time. But one point I really want to make is that 
you know, it, it is nice to see Janet Yellen, Joe Biden and others talking about structural inequality and how things like racism and sexism uh, are definitely barriers that still exist in the workplace and in other various economic opportunities. But we we, we need to be having the conversation that you can't uh, you can't tackle these problems without tackling capitalism itself, without recognizing that capitalism as a system is engineered, it's designed, it functions by engendering these very sorts of, of, uh, of prejudices, of exploitation. And so to not recognize that is to just, you know, it's, it's to put a Band-Aid on a bullet wound. Agree with you, Matt. Let's end the show, unfortunately, on the lowest clip of the show. This is Joe Biden, briefest clip also on what the role of government is. I also used to say, Joey, I don't expect the government to solve my problems, but I do expect them to understand my problems. That's Joe Biden talking about what his dad taught him. Uh, look, folks, I, I, I think I get what he's trying to say. Um, however, I, I do expect the government to solve some of my problems because that's what government is for. <laughs> Just like why do, no I, I expect my uh, all my uh, congressional represent, representatives to be shrinks who just listen to me complain about how i don't have enough money to to eat and then just say hmm maybe try not sucking so hard and then <laughs> send me on my way this is this is the potential problem with a Joe Biden presidency coming out of a Trump presidency is we don't just need an empathetic president. We don't just need Uncle Joe to be nice to us and tell us to get along. We need Uncle we need Joe, Uncle Joe to give us an allowance to solve to solve these issues. Yeah, we can, uh, Matt. I, yeah, if I want a therapist, I'll go get a therapist. I don't want my government to be my therapist. I want them to prevent me from having to get a therapist in the first place. I just I. Can't can't hear that and like not see joe biden like accidentally kicking a soccer ball into his own goal <laughs> so dumb. that's a really nice visual <laughs> hey folks we are way out of time we gotta end it here we could go on but um you listen to evidence of design on 100.9 fm wxir in rochester you can check out all of our past episodes on youtube or anywhere you get a podcast Thank you for tuning in to your local grassroots community radio station here at WXIR Studios. Up next is the Esquire Hour. Stay tuned. They always put on a killer show. Folks, COVID-19 is really bad out there, especially locally right now. Please wear a mask and physically distance from others. I was your host, Jason Taser, Jason Taylor, whatever my name is. Also joined by my good friends and co-hosts, Matt Treadwell. Jason Taser. And Mary Lawrence. Stay safe, everyone. Indeed. Until next time, be well, please stay safe, take care, stay involved in politics, and bye-bye.